Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Sports Science at Southampton Football Club, Alec Gross. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is sponsored by Val Performance, the team behind the Nordboard hamstring testing system. So the Nordboard is the fastest and easiest, most accurate way to measure hamstring strength. So with the Nordboard, you'll get the right information to make the right decisions at the right time. If you want to check them out, you can check them out at valdeperformance.com. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is sponsored by Train With Push, creators of the Push Band. So the push band is the first scientifically validated uh, wearable device to provide objective insights into your performance in the gym. So using accelerometers and a gyroscope, the push band is able to use bar speed to regulate load and volume based on your ability in the gym on any given day. So you can use the push band to quickly establish uh, 1RMs with submaximal loads so you can plan with confidence. So the pushband portal also allows you to create programs before entering the gym uh, to make change on the fly depending on how you are performing on that given day. So you can customize everything from target velocity ranges to differentiating velocities for warm-up and creating working sets and supersets uh, for yourself or your athletes. So if you do want to know more about Train With Push and the pushband, get yourself over to trainwithpush.com. They also got a great blog, so you can catch up with some guest bloggers such as Mladen Ivanovic and Dan Baker. So be sure to check them out at trainwithpush.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So today, delighted to get Alec Gross on from Southampton, who is the Head of Sports Science. So welcome to the podcast, Alec. Cheers, mate. Do you just want to give us a little bit of background on you, um, anyone that doesn't know who you are and obviously Head of Sports Science, but um, what you're doing now at Southampton? Yeah, so um, Head of Sports Science at the minute, so I've been here for um, for three years now, um, started off um, in the academy um, and then sort of been in this role about two and a half years now. Um, so my job really is to, um, is to manage... Um, and deliver sort of strength and conditioning, sports science, nutrition, and and some of the psychology uh, psychology elements of the service that we provide for the first team uh, and then the academy. So it's it's part of delivery and then part of managing uh, and supporting the staff that, that work within the department. Mm-hmm. So what what were you doing before Southampton? So uh, way back when I started off working in rugby league, so um, sort of in two thousand and six. Um, so I was working with the Leeds Rhinos for for five seasons, started off as an intern there uh, and ended up staying for five years and then uh, had an interim period where I was um, I was lecturing in, in sports science in the HE department at Hartbury College um, and then sort of moved here. So a bit of time in rugby, a bit of time in, in higher education and then obviously three years in football off the back of that. Mm-hmm. So what did, you, what did you bring over from rugby? What were your biggest influences in rugby that have made their way into your football days? I think the the main one is I mean I started working when I started uh, my first job there was uh, Tony Smith was the coach and, and Franny Cummins was was one of the assistants and um, pretty much from the word go 
they would question you and you had to be able to rationalise your decisions and your opinions. Um, and I think from uh, initial stages uh, as a, an early professional, I think that's really good to make sure that you can justify what you're saying. Because um, if you can't justify it to them, you can't justify it to the players and you probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, and I, I guess that's what I do now. I try and justify everything that, that I'm doing, in, um, whether it's to be coaches or to players or to the staff, um, just to make sure that, that we're making the right decisions for the right reasons. Um, so I guess that, that sort of grounding was, was good. Um, I also think it, it was a reasonably, well, it was a very successful environment to be in as well. So some of the, the characteristics, key characteristics from the staff and from the players um, have sort of shaped how I think things should be done as well in terms of uh, how people act, how people behave, how people apply themselves in training. Um, so I think just taking some of the, the real positives about um, about being in a, in a high performance and a successful environment are some of the things I've taken over really. So what was the, what's your relationship like with coaches in football compared to your relationship with uh, coached in rugby. I mean, I've I've been a little bit just on on the on the periphery in, in rugby league, but it seems uh, obviously it's generally not normally a smaller team yeah. because of of obviously finances and things. Yeah. But how how does from a kind of sports science S and C perspective, what's the relationship differences across the sports? I think um, <clears throat> I think there's probably a wider acceptance of sports science and strength and conditioning in rugby league. Um, a born out of the fact that a, a lot of the coaches are ex-players, so they're they're used to, and have had that during their career. So there's an expectation for that. Um, so there's probably a, a better understanding. Um, also, there's there's just an absolute requirement for it. If you look at a rugby league player, if they're not big, fast, powerful, strong, it doesn't matter how technically gifted they are. They're not they're not going to be able to survive. Um, so I think the the absolute requirement for it makes sort of the relationships and, and selling the processes, if, if you like, uh, that a little bit easier. Um, now, I've been very fortunate to come to a football club that have very similar coaches. So they, they understand um, the requirements to be physically robust. They understand why strength is important. They understand all sorts of the, the, the monitoring and the sports science aspects that we try and uh, what, what we do apply across the club. So I've been very fortunate that, but I'm aware that that might not be reflected across across all football teams. Um, that being said, I think, I mean, I'm in a fortunate position where the, the staff that have been in my position before I got here have obviously had very similar philosophies and, and done well in terms of working with the coaches and players. Um, but we also work quite heavily in terms of delivering coach CPD for um, first team academy coaches, scouting and recruitment, just to make sure that they know why we're doing uh, what we're doing. So it's not just a it happens out, out of earshot, out of sight. They understand exactly what we're doing and the purpose for it um, before we do it. So I think on the whole, rugby is a little more, a bit more attuned um, to sports science, strength and conditioning. But certainly this football club's good and, and I'd suggest that there's, there's quite a few others that are uh, as good and, and a lot of clubs have improved on that. Because it does get a bad rap, like we've said before. Yeah. <clears throat> it does get abused think- when, yeah. I think it's, um, I mean, it, it, it's it's born from people that probably haven't been in this environment. I know I, I may have had a, a similar um, opinion prior to it. Um, there's, there's, um, there is a, a misunderstanding of, of a, what is required to play football. 
be what what goes on in football clubs. There's, there'd be very few, if any, that that haven't got strength programs as as part of their program. And it might not be the uh, the absolute be all and end all, but but all players will will perform, and they certainly do at our club some form of strength based programming. I know our academy it's it's quite a heavy focus on on our physical development plan is is strength underpinning everything, um, and that is carried on to the first team. But I think people externally have a a misconception of, of what we uh, in football actually do um, <laughs> and also that the, the priorities might not actually be that the priority to play rugby league you you have to have, be of a, a certain strength and a certain size in order to compete in football yes it is important but there might be other aspects that are more important for that player um, and unless you're working in that team that environment or that player then you, you don't know that um, and it's it's relatively easy to cast aspersions, but yeah, I'd say that um, there is a there is a bad rap, but it is mostly from uh, from people who haven't even been in to see the environment. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the academy, yeah, do you just want to talk to us a little bit about the the kind of culture of of strength playing a um, strength training playing a big part in the the lads' development? Um, just maybe maybe a few details around um, kind of what's involved in that in that program. Maybe coming towards the the time where they do go, uh, it's kind of do or die for first team, and um, maybe a little bit of detail there. I mean, from from like the physical perspective, it's a, <coughs> a, a, a pretty sort of clear cut and robust performance plan in terms of of what what's expected at, at what age groups as they go through. Now we. Our players come in from the age of seven, and at that point they are doing what will broadly or loosely be termed as strength-based stuff. It is raced around locomotion and, and fundamental movements, um, but it is certainly underpinning some some movement patterns and, and some neural um, development in terms of that aspect. Um, alongside some, uh, we encourage sort of multi-sport at that lower end as well. Um, so sampling other sports, um, they are required to train quite a lot of fo- uh, quite a lot of football hours. Um, so we try and make sure we balance that out with, with relevant multi-sports. Um, that might include sort of basketball, volleyball, but also judo, gymnastics, which again has some, some relatively good crossovers in terms of strength development. And then from that, we have basically we've got a competency model that, that runs throughout the club. So regardless of, of whether you're 11 or you're in the first team, you, you're sort of somewhere on that scale because we might have, we might sign uh, a player with uh, Potentially from another country that's got zero training history in terms of strength-based programming, and he can't then just jump on board with what the first team who maybe have been in our system for ten years can do. So he might have a similar similar type program uh, to one of our younger players um, in terms of competency, and then we it basically increases from simple to more complex movements, and then we either increase the complexity of the movement um, or we'll increase the load of the movement um, depending on. The individual, the time that we've got, and their sort of individual requirements, and it's pretty straightforward in terms of its push, pull, press, hip dominant, knee dominant, and some unilateral stuff, um, and some brace rotate. So it's it's not all really complicated, but it just means that whenever a player comes in at any stage in the program, um, they can jump somewhere in that, and it makes it easier for when players jump between age groups because we like to promote players from upwards because we want as many players in the first team as possible um, it's just so that when they move between coaching staff or training groups they're comfortable in what they're doing the coaches are happy to prescribe what they're doing uh, and ultimately the player keeps progressing on that so it's just a basic competency based programme 
Um, but it is, yeah, it's a pretty essential part of, of what we do. So is there, is there, is it not like an ongoing testing process? So if they tick certain boxes within that training session, or is there an actual, like every six weeks, will one session will be a, like a, t- a competency test and they, they move on or they don't move on? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's down to, it, there is that competency within them. We run four-week hot cycles anyway in the gym. And at that stage, it's the, the individual coaches um, then decision to, to decide whether we're, uh, we're going to increase load and, and keep those movements the same or, in, or increase the complexity. I mean, younger down, um, it'll typically be an increase in the complexity of movement uh, and older, if, we, if we've sort of got less time, um, we, we want to get as much um, sort of progress as we can. We, we might just load simple uh, exercises just to get some, some quicker adaptation. Um, so it, it's sort of dependent on on the coach that's working with that, the, the needs of that individual player. So we sort of do a every six weeks there'll be uh, a player review, so individual player review from physical perspective, psychological, education if they're still in there, and then a sort of technical, tactical. And at that point, that type of thing is discussed. So is his, what are his performance needs in, in those areas? What's his next plan of action going to be? Um, I think lower down, it's again, it's in the younger age groups or the adolescent age groups, Particularly, is it's dependent on sort of growth status. So if they're going through a, a big growth spurt, um, then we'll probably actually go back down the scale. So we go back down to more simple movements, take some load off, and then re-educate those movements until they're at a point where they're they're comfortable in their and their new longer and taller body, and then we can start loading those movements again. So is that is that structure that you just talked about then um, carried on in the first team? Yeah, yeah, okay. so yeah, yeah. So it's it's um, essentially with pretty much all the processes that we do, um, not just in, in our department. I mean, it's in terms of coaching and playing philosophy, in terms of how the analysts uh, assess games and, and the information that's provided to players and coaches. And then, in addition to to what we do, we very much try and keep the same all the way through. So the very similar processes. It helps us track players, uh, things that work and the things that don't. It also means that, as I said earlier on, players are comfortable. It's not they've gone from under 21s and they go to the first team and everything's completely different. They're already in a pretty stressful environment. If we change too many things, it, it makes them feel uncomfortable. It makes them stand out. It's it's potentially any any new stimulus that they haven't got time to adapt to increases the risk of injury. So we just keep everything uh, in terms of processes from the first team down or from the under eights up, whichever way you want to look at it, pretty standard. Um, just so everyone's comfortable, we can monitor players as they go through the system. If people train with different squads on different days, it's easier to, to monitor progress and to deliver sessions. Um, so yeah, all first team down is is pretty pretty similar. <clears throat> Excuse me. So just carry on the kind of academy theme. Yep. You've had plenty of people come through the academy. Yeah. And obviously, a lot are still there. Many have moved on. Obviously, Walcott been there. And for you, the other guys been been a kind of more high profile. But how do you, as staff, um, well, like a club wide, really consistently keep developing these players compared to a a system at another club? Not talking about other clubs, but compared to other clubs that don't. And there's, there's stats saying you know there's not been a player in the first team for so many years, but you keep churning them out. I think uh, it comes from there's a pretty strong philosophy within the club, so set from. Uh, from way up at board level about 
there's an expectation that we produce players, so we want half of our first team to, to have come through our system. Um, so that, from, from the outset, is a, is a very strong and direct um, sort of directive from, from up high on, on to what we need to do, and then they'll support that. So the support in terms of staffing and facilities uh, and investment into, into the academy to, to give the, the staff that work there the best the best possible chance of doing it. So there's definitely a clear expectation on that. I think it's also pretty clear of the club have an expectation of what a Southampton player looks like. So technically, what should it look like? Tactically, physically, even socially, what 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 do our players look like um, at, at the end point? So in terms of when they're a first-team player, what do we want them to look like? And because we've got a clear endpoint, it makes it a lot easier further down the line either to identify ones that are on that trail. So when we're trying to recruit players, are they do they have similar qualities to the ones that we're trying to trying to nurture? If there's a point in their progression where they're they're off hat on that, I'm going to talk about the player reviews every six weeks. We can go back to that and identify which of the areas are they not achieving on, uh, and work on those. There's a pretty clear directive as to what the player should look like, and that's sort of constantly reviewed in terms of. Of, of how it should be. Um, there's, I think we're pretty far short. I'll, I'll just talk about the sports science because I can't really talk for everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But um, we've got, um, I mean, we're pretty fortunate that we've got we've got members of staff that that works so or the three lads that work for me in, in my schoolboy department, and they're absolutely passionate about about adolescent and pediatric science. They're not overly interested in. Uh, a lot of people that get into professional sport will look up and they'll want to work in older age groups or first team, which can have an impact on on sort of consistency of, of service and delivery. They, they're absolutely passionate about that and, and are rewarded for being experts in that area. Um, they're, they're our best coaches in terms of, of delivery because they, they need to do most coaching. Um, and, and I think that and that's reflected across sort of the football coaches and the analysts and the teachers and uh, the sports services that are around the players as well, that we have people that are experts in that area and are happy working in that area. So they're not really looking up or looking sideways. They want to they wanna develop, they want to be the best under-15s coach they can be. And I think having that at each aspect sort of uh, promotes it. So we're required to do it, um, but then we've also got the staff and the facilities and the investment from above that, that, helps, that helps us develop it. The other thing is we've... I mean, from a sports science perspective, sometimes it's quite hard because you run with, we have pretty small squad sizes. So therefore, if, if someone is, is good enough, they will play up an age group or play up a couple of age groups. So give them that opportunity and that exposure. Um, whereas some clubs that have massive squads or then have massive squads that are out on loan and, and all that sort of thing, they might not necessarily get the chance. Um, and our players get the chance. And I think it's, it's infrequent that a player will, will be given a chance in the first team or in 18s or playing the 21s or all the way down and that player doesn't perform. And I think because we have small squad sizes and because we have um, sort of similar systems across the club, it's easy to do that. And then when the players get their opportunity, they're comfortable, uh, they know the system that they're playing in, they're familiar with what's happening uh, and therefore they're, they're more likely to perform in that environment. Because I mean, it's, it's one thing that's constantly talked about with regards to the lads that are working with the the younger age groups, yeah, where they should be the, the better coach, they should be the best coaches because they've got more the most time with the players, and they're at a certain age where you know adaptation can happen and things like that. But it sounds like that is actually the the you know that's been put in place, Southampton. Yeah, so it's so it's not again, it's not 
it's neither better or worse. It's just the skill set in which they are they are good at. So the the first team staff have um, a certain skill set in terms of, of knowledge, delivery, interpersonal skills that are different. They're different, but they're not better or worse than the ones that work with schoolboys. Similar to the ones that work with the 18s and 21s. That's a very specific age group in terms of their requirements, physically, emotionally, all those things. So by placing staff that are good in those age groups and are happy working with those age groups, I think it just allows the system to work rather than people trying to look up and thinking, I want to be in the first team because it's glamour and I'll get paid more and stuff. Well, Maud, you, you get rewarded if you're good in the age group that you work with. Um, and I think that's... That's part of the success, I think. Mm-hmm. So that brings me on to the an article I think came out in a pretty shitty newspaper a couple of months ago about the uh, the buyer banding of players yes. in the yeah, academy. Yeah. yeah, and it probably came out probably about ten years after it actually started, um, as with as all these kind of things do. But you just want to talk to us a little bit about first the reason for that and maybe why you went down that route in the first place. Um. So yeah, I mean. It's essentially born out of we, we need to produce academy players. So we need to make sure, as I said before, about we know what our first team looks like. So we know what physically we look like, tactically, all that sort of stuff. So we, we've, we've got a mold as to what we're aiming for. Now, when we looked at the relative age effects, is not a new phenomenon. It's really old and it's explicit across most sports. Um, when we looked at, at our foundation academy and then our, um, our youth academy, they didn't match up. So... Our first team squad is typically around about 25% for each quartile. It wasn't reflected that lower down, so we had, we, had, we were heavily, overly invested in, in Q1, so quartile one players, and those born uh, September, October, November. Um, and we know if we look at the output that that actually isn't going to work for us. So we're actually we're probably recruiting, and actually if we look through it, we're releasing a lot of Q4s and retaining more Q1s, so we're not recruiting the right players and we're probably releasing the wrong ones. Um, so that as a starting point was, okay, that's a bit of an issue. Um, and this has been going on at the club for a while, so it's, I'm not claiming any uh, sole credit for this. It, I'm just, uh, I'll talk about some of the stuff we've done recently, but this is work that's been done done at the club uh, for a while there. So relative age effect was a bit of an issue. Um, we're recruiting and possibly retaining the wrong players. Um, so we needed to do something about it. So we uh, essentially um, we use Cammy's Roach method. So uh, percentage, uh, predicted out height. So we work out how tall they are going to be, um, and then as a percentage of that, so you're eight percent if you predicted adult height, and we sort of band them in in that way. Um, so work out how tall they're going to be. Percentage of that is reflective of their stage of maturation, and then we can start looking at. At comparing people on a maturational status rather than a um, sort of a chronological status, which which has helped us for a number of reasons, really. Um, so I think some of the other things that we looked at, our later maturing players, we've got higher, a much higher percentage through the system. So if you were if you're a Q4 or you're a late maturing player, um, and you're lucky enough to get through the system, um, because a lot of them do did get released, not so much anymore. Um, your chance of being a first-team player is a lot higher, so we, we produced a lot more. And then you look at the research behind that uh, and you start coming up with underdog theory uh, and all those sort of pretty well-known theories on on players that will, because they are physically less able or, or less strong, they develop uh, a greater technical ability 
um, because they, they have to make up the shortcomings somewhere. And they also develop a sort of psychological robustness as well um, in order to compete with those those bigger, stronger boys. So the the Q4s are getting, uh, are getting that uh, as part of their development naturally. So we then looked at, well, how do we make sure that our first quartile boys get that at some point in our system? So it goes back to the biobanding. We, we basically train uh, and play matches on chronological age, so it, in it's as it would be across across everywhere else. But we'll also do training and matches in terms of our biobanded age groups as well. So you might have our 89 to 95%ers, say, play each other. And within that, you might have an under 12 and an under 15. Um, so they're just in that way, the match. So when we're assessing uh, the players, so we're assessing their competencies and, and scouting recruitment and coaches are giving their match grades, which they're retained or released on, they're actually competing against people of a, of a similar maturational status. They still might have small ones and big ones, but the small ones are always going to be small and the big ones are probably always going to be big. But it's not matched on height or weight. It is on, on their stage of development. Um, and in doing that, every, uh, we talked about player reviews before, every six weeks or 12 weeks, we can change those groups around to allow the early developers within their age group, they then will train with people of a higher maturational status. So even though they're an early mature for an under 14, say, they will get the opportunity to be a late mature in their training age group. So they'll get the, the benefits of being an underdog, even though they are an early mature. So hopefully in that way, we're giving our early maturing players the same benefits as a late maturing player might get in terms of the, the technical um, development and the psychological robustness. Um, so yeah, we, we sort of train, train and play on that, and expose people to to each part of that. So everyone, hopefully in their in their time, will will have been an, an early mature against people who are physically more dominant, um, a late mature against people who are physically less dominant, and then uh, and a match status as well. So they get the whole sort of benefit of of um, of sort of skilled psychological and, and physical robustness through that. Interesting. So. I just, want, I just want to move on a little bit to uh, stay in the academy. Well, a little, I suppose loosely, but with, with the likes of the two, again, the two that pop into my head are, are Walcott and Oxlade Chamberlain, both very explosive players. What, Gareth Bale? Yeah. <laughs> Don't talk about him. Not at the moment. <laughs> yeah, Gareth Bale, yeah. Um, and. You've thrown me off. you thrown me off now with that that comment about the Welsh. Um, yeah. So talk about the the explosive players that come through the system. Yeah. Do you just want to talk about how you you manage them guys? Um, yeah. Is is there some sort of um, you know uh, thoughts that that I suppose a, a philosophy that is that is born out of um, them explosive players and then how you manage them on a, on a day to day basis compared to everyone else. Um, it's probably going to sound relatively boring, but we, we sort of treat every player pretty similarly. Um, so in terms of, of say, monitoring, for instance, it, we just look, we, we, we measure various things and we're just looking at uh, sort of differentiation from, from expected norms for that individual. So whether they're a, an explosive player, their, their normative profile will be different on certain elements to, to someone who's maybe not as explosive. But we're just looking for differences outside of that that normative profile for that player um, for us to make any sort of amendments to, to training programs off the back of that. So it's not necessarily just on the, the, the powerful athletes. It's sort of across the board that, that we'd measure. Again, it's, I'm 
saying the same thing. We have pretty similar processes across age groups and across players, um, just to allow allow um, sort of similarity of service. Really, so there's nothing there's nothing exceptional. I mean, we've got explosive players at the minute that that react that on the pitch would look like explosive players. They measure explosively in terms of of gym based sessions and on what we assess in there. But they'll they'll react differently to certain session types. Um, so it is. It's just a requirement to to find out what their their norm is, and then if it deviates from that, then we can we can adapt based on that. Mm-hmm. Just looking at a few things that I'd, I'd written down, I've missed something out yeah. that, I, that I'd like to um, ask you about, and it's something you mentioned a couple of times, and that was recruitment. Yeah, I'd spoke to Phil Coles at uh, San Antonio Spurs, and he'd. He'd written an article about this, and we discussed it in the podcast about how how heavily he's involved in the recruitment process. Obviously, a completely different beast with how much he can be involved because of the the draft and actually seeing these guys before they're um, before they're signed or not signed. Obviously, that's not the case in 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 football and kind of traditional sports. But how much how much say do you get in the in the recruitment process? I think. Um... Again, because we we've sort of based on on stats, for instance, that when people aren't in our, our club and because there's no draft, it's reasonably difficult to to then compare externals to what we currently have uh, in the first team setting. Lower down, we're in um, every sort of recruitment meeting. So when in time there's a retainer release or if someone's been on trial and, and we're deciding, um, there's either myself or a member of the sports science team that are in there. Um, so. Again, we've got a profile of what we think a player should look like at each stage of development, um, and then we can give feedback based on on their if they're above or below the curve. Obviously, taking into consideration training age in that, if there's someone coming who's done zero training and they're below the curve, then there's the discussion on on a if, if we think that we'll be able to to advance their physical program or physical development. Sorry, um, and then b if we're going to do that, there's some discussion and debate. Well, if that's going to be the case, then uh, in terms of their training program, where are we going to get time back from from maybe technical development for that player to get the physical development he needs? Um, so then there's a discussion between the coaching staff, medical staff, sports science staff on to the, the individual needs of that player. Certainly there'll be um, higher up, there's, there's certain conversations around players in terms of, of opinions. We'll obviously look at, at due diligence around injury, match times. Um, there's some occasions where you, you might go and watch some games, but it's difficult that's all sort of subjective, um, subjective opinions. We'd like to be as objective as possible, but at the minute we're we're not in a position to necessarily uh, get hard data on on potential signings. Mm-hmm. So, with your with your recent forays into Europe, how how does how does your kind of weekly structure change change up when you've got uh, the dreaded Thursday night games uh, yeah. in Europe and maybe. How um, how your specific points in the week, as in your kind of on-field sessions, uh, yeah. gym-based sessions, how they look, and maybe how they change with that kind of consistent, ruthless two games a week. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think our foray into Europe was relatively short last year, <laughs> uh, which wasn't the best. But sorry, this year we've, I mean, we've. We've, we've qualified for league stages, so there'll be there'll be a, a lot more of that. Essentially, we're preparing ourselves for fixture congestion, so you just treat it as you would do, uh, say, the Christmas or the festive period. Um, but 
but we need to do it in a short period of time. So essentially, we're going from from now uh, or from next week when the players are back in, um, and we need to prepare our, our players to perform three games a week from uh, the second week in September. So it's not a massive period of time in order to get you know to get people prepared for that. Um, so essentially, the how we devise that and how we plan that is um, we go off off the data that we've currently got. So in any given game, so we'll take what is the worst case scenario for a player in any given position. So what was the hardest game they've had since they've been in here and what does that look like to that player? We'll times that by three and essentially that's we've got till September 15th to make sure that they can deal with that comfortably. So it's not that they can do that for one week because they need to recover and, and, and be able to play and, and recreate that the week after. Um, so again, we look, we've got an end point in terms of the, the metrics, if you like, of what they need to be able to do to perform. Um, and then we just track back so given time uh, the time that we've got how are we going to increase that in a sensible manner I mean everyone's uh, everyone's in the cute chronic stuff that's been going around um, everyone's been to the workshops um, <laughs> but essentially we're uh, um, we, we've run off that we've run off that before um, it's, and we're just looking at, at making sure our chronic load is high enough if that's the term you want to use and making sure that we haven't got really high acute spikes now because of the short amount of time that has a little bit of an impact on our off-season program so some of the off-season stuff that the boys have been doing has been has been higher than it would have been before just so that they, they come back at a higher level than they have been so the spikes aren't as as serious as they will be in order to prepare them for for september so it there's been a bit of long-term planning in terms of off-season stuff as well um i mean in a typical week saturday to saturday if we were just playing once a week um there will be one day off. I mean, we, we run a sort of a three-week recycle in a way where you've got um, sort of a low week, moderate week, hard week, not necessarily in that order. Um, but typically week to week, they'll do they'll do uh, two strength sessions. So like a, a strength and then uh, the second session will be more of like a power or a stim-based session. Um, within a week, obviously, in a, in a, when we've got three games in that week, they won't, they won't do any. Um, typically, is they'll be travelling if we look at our fixtures either side of them. We've got some some overnight trips sort of the day, the, the game after Europe uh, and also some of the game before. So we, we just have to strip them out um, and ensure that the load that week is, is just matches. So there's not there's no other uh, real load in, in them weeks. Um, so yeah, gym stuff will get taken out. And we also need to look at, at programming in some heavy weeks leading that into that just to make sure that they are prepared um, in terms of, of performing. So uh, reducing sort of days off, making sure there's some there's some pretty heavy load in terms of training to make sure that they that when they get to it the games aren't actually that hard. Um, and I think on on that as well is is the importance of the the team that aren't playing. Um, we uh, we typically don't change our team that much, um, and it's in season especially in football it's quite easy to maintain the fitness uh, capacity if you just want to maintain um, other people that are playing because they've, they've got at least one uh, match and then they'll have a hard training session during the week. Um, but if the, the, the boys that aren't playing, particularly early in the season, that might be required to play in, uh, if we get an injury and they need to play three games in a week, we need to make sure that the boys that aren't playing replicate that. So our fit non-selected sessions and our, our sessions on match days when they don't play are obviously pretty important and the ability to replicate match demands without playing a match becomes pretty vital for them as well. So making sure the team behind the team is ready. Um, so typically we'll do uh, Monday, 
will be uh, like a restart each day. Tuesday will be intensive stuff, so a lot of us, um, a lot of back sales and D sales uh, creates quite a bit of doms and soreness with a gym session after that. Uh, so lunch, gym session, Wednesday day off or, or an extensive session. Thursday sort of match prep and then um, sorry Thursday sort of phases of play and unit work. Friday match prep and travel and then play Saturday. So it's we we typically have a match, two loading sessions. One is intensive in nature, so small areas. One's extensive in nature, so larger areas. Uh, and then sort of the unit working around that in addition to, to the two gym sessions. And then every every field session is preceded by uh, a pre-ab and a pre-act session as well. Can you go into into any of the detail on, on what the sessions look like? In terms of... In, in the, sorry, in terms of the, the gym sessions on the Tuesday and the Thursday, the strength and power sessions? So, uh, so Tuesday session, uh, to take a, a typical session. So they'll do... Um, it will, I mean, depending on the, the player, yeah. but typically a, a normal strength-based session um, would be, again, depending on the competency, a squat or, or deadlift movements so will be a, a bilateral um, hip dominant uh, and a bilateral knee dominant in a given week. So across the two, a unilateral one of those in a given week. Um, there'll be a push, pull, a press and a brace rotate. So we might do uh, front squat, of which, depending on the time of year, is within normal parameters in terms of four sets of five or whatever we're doing. Um, single leg IDL, bench press, inverted row, and then sort of a pallet press or, or med ball rotation throws, that type of thing. So it's pretty standard gym-based programming, really. And what does your so how does that differ to your your power session? So the first session is just by type of exercise. So, okay. Yeah. Um, it, it it may be we use some uh, some vertimax stuff for, for resistance sprinting. It might be that we're doing jump squats, box jumps, bounds, uh, hurdle hops, plyos, that type of thing. So it it just takes some of the load out in terms of volume, um, and we're just looking at, at fast movements with relatively low loads at the back end of that week in season, just because. Um, just making sure that they're, they're fresh for the, for the end of the week, but they're still getting some stimulus in terms of, of practicalities in, in applying that strength on field. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned off-season there, and I'd, I'd, I'd written that down. It's something that's obviously the time of year at the minute. It's yeah. something that I've been chatting to a couple of people about and and what, they actually, what the off-season looks like now compared to maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, where lads would maybe get six weeks off and... And hope for the best when they came back. That was obviously never going to not going to be the case. What does your you said it's a bit more intense with regards yeah. to the, the stuff that you're asking your boys to do this off season? So what what does it look like for for the guys that um, aren't involved in you know internationals and things? Just the lads that finish on the last day of the season and will come back first day of preseason. So what's, uh, what's their theirs look like? Yeah, so they've had six, they'll have been away from the club for six weeks mm-hmm. um, at that stage. They they get relatively simple programs that are based around energy system maintenance or development where we're aware that where they're going to be there it's going to be in a hotel um or that type of facility for the majority of the time um so most of them won't come in um so typically we'll start with sort of aerobic based sessions so sort of lower steady state stuff and then we just drop that down into sort of bbo2 or, or mass running um, yes, running, 
and, and then high speed work towards the end of it. So we've basically gone down energy system continuum um, based around that. So they get two weeks off uh, at some point. So it's not always the first two weeks that they get off. Um, I say off, they only do one session a week that week. Um, and then they'll, outside of that, they'll do three, three field-based sessions or three running sessions. Uh, and then they'll do two or three gym-based sessions in there as well. The gym-based sessions are, again, relatively simple. Um, but they're they're based around sort of uh, strength strength based parameters, so sets of five, um, so relatively um, moderate sort of rep ranges and, and relatively high load um, for them. So they'll do two strength sessions a week, and then they've got three sort of three running sessions. Again, it's just to make sure that they're sort of the start off with they'll be slow steady state stuff, four sets of four uh, four blocks of four minutes, then thirty seconds on, thirty seconds off type stuff. Um, in terms of, of energy system development, we're aware that if we make it too complicated, they're probably not going to do it. Um, if we make it, I mean, it, it, we can't make, we won't tell them to run on a pitch because if someone run on the pitch near the house, then they'll probably get uh, a small stadium full of people watching. Mobbed. Want. Yeah, so it, we, we're kind of restricted in, in that regard in terms of what we can do. It's based around treadmills. Um, most of the time, um, so we, we have to balance up what you'd like to do with what what's practical and, and what you think the players will actually do. Um, and there's other ways around that. There's certain there's certain ways of, of WhatsApp really good for getting people to take pictures and and check in with with information rather than getting them to download download certain bits of of kit and software. If we just get them, I mean, we don't have to do it with with most, but some players you might want to just make sure that they check in in terms of taking pictures of what they've actually done um, based on that. Yeah, so uh, running sessions and, and gym-based sessions in that regard. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for that. I appreciate you, uh, appreciate the detail uh, going into what you guys are doing. But I just wanted to, uh, as I always am, I'm just conscious of time and, yeah. and uh, you're having a long day with, with what's going on down there. So okay. where, can people, where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on? Um, I guess Twitter's as good a place as any. Um, we're um, we're looking. Well, we are going to start. Um, I know. I mean, I went on see Joyce at GWS, and they've got they've got a pretty good uh, Twitter activity over there. And, and we're just going to set up um, sort of a, a blog and and that sort of thing for for just the staff within our department to discuss sort of products we've done, programs we've done, things we might have been and seen. Um, so yeah, other than that, we'll uh, you'll uh, you can I'm uh, at Alex Gross on Twitter. Um, I'm not as over the top of some people, um, but if there's something good, I might retweet or I'll make a comment. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that, that sort of keeps up to date. And we're also um, we've got some uh, we've got some journal articles coming out pretty soon. Uh, one's going to hopefully well, it is it's going to be in BGSM uh, in terms of some of our uh, our loading stuff. So looking at acute chronic and accumulation of load and, and injury stuff. Um, we, we like to be pretty open in terms of, of what we do. Um, we'll publish stuff that we actually do, try and discuss it if we can. Um, and also if people want to come in, then we were, uh, we're pretty welcome in terms of, of people can come and, and have a look, and especially the ones that that uh, look down on football, they're welcome anytime. <laughs> cool. Well, I, uh, I again, like I said before, I appreciate the, uh, the openness about what yeah. you guys are doing down there. So... Yeah, thanks very much. No worries, mate. No worries, and we'll um, we'll catch up soon.
Cheers, Rob. Cheers, All right, Rob. pal. See you, mate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 96 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate your feedback on guests, on how things are formatted, anything, any feedback is, is always welcome. So don't forget to follow me on Twitter at PaceyPerform and you can keep up to date with everything that's going on the podcast um, over the next couple of weeks. So I hope you enjoyed the chat with Alec. Uh, keep tuned in for a big episode 100 coming up, which is, which is great. Uh, and I will speak to you in episode 97.